0: Loudspeaker Studios. Welcome to our show.
1: Welcome to our
2: show. It's a good show. Big big shoe. It's really huge. Welcome to our show. Welcome to our
1: show. It's a good show.
0: I'm Andy Deemer, the man who didn't write *Troméo and Juliet*. That was James Gunn. But you are listening to the Talking Trauma Podcast with Zach Bynes.
2: It's a good show. Big, big shoe. It's really huge. Welcome to the show.
1: And welcome to episode 15 of Talking Trauma with your host, me, Zach Bynes. The show where me and a guest distort our realities by watching a trauma movie, then pair it with a non-trauma title for a fantasy double feature. I want to say thank you for everybody for sticking with me over the unannounced break I just had when I had the Rona. Get your shots, people. Uh, but thank you for listening, and uh, there's some big things in the works for the shows, but I'll get that announced on a future episode. But first, let me introduce my guests. He helped bring Tromeo and Julia into existence, got a killer bod from using the Troma system, commanded the Troma team in the American Chicken Bunker during the shooting of Poultry Geist. He is an author, celebrated magician. Let me introduce to you, Andy Deamer.
0: Hi although I take I take umbrage with the first thing you said those first words out of your mouth you 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 say he helped bring romeo and juliet into existence i would say the opposite i would say almost that that he helped sabotage the film <laughs> and so it almost didn't get made um yeah maybe he was responsible for half of the original script which was so bad it had to be rewritten and rewritten again and then thrown away and started anew by James Gunn.
1: But that, if it that, was... that
0: might've been more appropriate, more accurate.
1: I mean, it says something to that effect in Lloyd's book.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think James wrote, it was about as funny as that time the two kids fell into the bear pit and got eaten alive. And then he stopped saying, actually, it wasn't that funny. Um <laughs> Which, which is is great i mean i love that that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no i i i did uh co-write the original the first draft of the script which was in iambic pentameter and very close to the original shakespeare play and it probably was not funny i have a copy of it somewhere but
1: I would like to read that if if uh, if you wouldn't mind if if you're not too embarrassed to share that with me. The, the,
0: the only problem is it's on I I know what format it's on. It's not printed. It's on one of those three and a half inch not floppy disk hard disk. Oh yeah, <laughs> like or a floppy disk in a hard casing, and so so it's in a disk that size, uh, and so if you know a way to get it off that disk, you could read it. And it's probably in an archaic format, like pre-Doc X. It yeah. Is.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. So you might
0: have to find like a 1993 computer, 1994 computer. Yeah. Somewhere around there.
1: I am sure the Troma offices probably have one around still.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's class of Newcomb high was probably produced on one. Yeah, that's correct. Um, yeah. So I, I, I was in, uh, in 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 Cannes at the Cannes Film Festival. And I wandered, I was wandering around at the Cannes Film Festival just a tourist. And I saw that Troma had an office there. And I was like, oh my gosh, I wonder if I can meet Lloyd Kaufman or the great Michael Hertz. So I, I went to the office and they said, oh no, those guys aren't here, but do you want a job? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so the next thing you know, I was working for Troma like 25 minutes later at the cannes film festival
1: and how old were um, you when uh when that was you're yeah. pretty young yeah i was
0: like 19 i think and maybe 20 and I, I was very uh energetic very excitable very excited and uh was basically it's the same intern story of any trauma intern where you know lloyd flew to town and and lloyd said, Oh you need a place to stay, stay stay with me, come stay with me. And oh you need a tie here, take my tie. And Lloyd was just the greatest guy. And and uh he said, Well, if, if you need a job for the summer, come back to New York and work for us. We don't pay anything. You, you'll have to eat cheese sandwiches, but but it, it's great. So I moved back to New York and or moved to New York and and basically was emptying trash cans and answering phones and One day Lloyd said, okay, Andy, why don't you write a movie? You're a smart kid. Write a movie for us. (laughs) Uh, It's called Tromeo and Juliet. Here, write it with Phil Revo, this other guy who works there. And so my jobs were still answering phones and taking out the trash, but now they included uh, write a movie for us. So, you know, now I finally discovered how movies came to be as amazing as they do. Lloyd just asks the first, 20-year-old kid he sees to write a movie for him. And, and that's how you end <laughs> up with Maniac Nurses Find Ecstasy or Fat Guy Goes Nutsoid or you know Surf Nazis.
1: So I want to back up uh even before that. What was your first introduction to trauma?
0: I was probably 15 years old. I was living in the UK. And I there was a movie theater called The Scala in in London at the time, which would show triple features every day and every Saturday night had a all night five feature movie marathon and every, every, the features every day were different. And one day they, they had a film, they showed a film called the toxic Avenger. And in the program, there was a picture of this, you know, muscle bound guy with a a mop wearing a tutu. And I was just like, what the fuck is this? Can I say fuck?
1: I can say fuck yeah you can say fuck it's a it's it's a trauma podcast
0: (laughs) of course of course so so um so but I was too young to go to the theater to see it I think it was like 21 and above or something and so I I um went to the video store and found a copy at the video store and got my dad to rent it for me and it had this this 3D articulated cover like those old maps that are like 3D maps and it had a 3D articulated cover of of the Toxic Avenger exploding out of the cover, on VHS, and we rented it. And he didn't watch it; I watched it, and it was the, it, it you know, overnight changed my life. It, it led to me exploring uh video stores for these weird cult films, for anything with the Trauma logo on it, but also led to me discovering Ray Dennis Steckler and Herschel Gordon Lewis and and all those other films but it was the toxic avenger that that did it first and i would go out and buy these in in england at the time and they were releasing vhs cassettes for like five pounds for to purchase which is like seven bucks or something and i would go out and buy anything with the trauma logo and my god the films were worse and worse and worse some of them were so unwatchably bad but Every now and then you would find a gem, like this masterpiece. Uh, and, and you know, you would, they would, videos would often, low budget videos would often have trailers for trauma movies like Sergeant Kabuki Nain on them. Yeah. But I could never see Sergeant Kabuki nan I, I could never find it, but I would see the trailer for it. And it was sort of, to me, that and Trauma's War were like these holy grail films that, that I could never find and never got to see until, until I worked at Trauma. And the trailers, I, I feel like there were those uh, uh at trauma we had these VHS tapes with nothing but trailers, like two hours of trailers on that we would play on a loop at film festivals. And those trailers are just magnificent. It really works of art.
1: I agree, yeah. They it almost could be its own museum piece, like you walk into the hall of trauma trailers. Yeah exactly
0: and, and just like the trauma posters many of which have nothing to do with the movie itself you know they don't feature the actors they they're like pictures of lloyd's daughter screaming or someone lloyd's daughter screaming but but the posters are also works of art
1: yeah <laughs> so when you were uh speaking of the trauma trailer tape that that ta- trailer tape was part of the trauma system oh yeah the so you system. you worked on the trauma system, right?
0: I did. I, I, much the same way that you worked on Poultry Geist or a lot of people worked on Poultry Geist where there was, I think, Jeff Sass or maybe um, Phil Revo, one of those guys was was producing the trauma system and they would send me out on these jobs, like go out and post, put posters looking for actor persons all over new york city or um you know try and find a location for us to film at try and find us food and it was these random jobs that i at this 20 year old kid in new york had no idea how to accomplish any of them um but but somehow helped to do these things um and, and so yeah we ended up filming the trauma system I was supposed to be a PA on the film, on the the show. And for those who haven't seen it, it's a a mock infomercial, but it's also an infomercial at the same time for the trauma system, which was a a collection of video cassettes, which will make you very buff or smart or something like that. And they shot in front of a studio audience of maybe a hundred. We shot in front of a studio audience, maybe a hundred people with, uh, really tacky uh infomercial type people on stage hawking the the video cassettes and then showing trailers in the the um uh advertising clips or ad, ad breaks and it was aired i think it was aired on comedy central i think i yeah. actually purchased the airtime
1: yeah i actually asked uh i asked debbie rashan about it and she said it was on Comedy Central before they were called Comedy Central back when it was HaHa. Ha.
0: Oh, really? Did Debbie Rishon work on the trauma system?
1: She was in um that was like one of her first on-camera things with trauma was the trauma system. Wow.
0: And that that was my first on-camera thing with trauma. That's so she awesome. and I may have been on stage together. I, I don't think I, I remember her. The the woman I remember. Who I worked very closely with was Zarina Dreams, who was uh an adult movie actress with rather large, um, yeah, large breasts. And when I say large, I mean like much larger than my head, maybe twice the size of my head for each breast. And she was in the movie Palm Springs or Bust. These are <laughs> the memories are coming out that I haven't thought of for. Literally a decade or two decades. Um, So she was in a movie called Palm Springs or bust. And I don't know. I I think this was her segue into serious acting was working on the trauma system. It was also, I think the last thing she ever did. (laughs) It's really sad. Um, So I was supposed to be a production assistant on the, the TV show, but Lloyd, Serena wanted she felt safer with me next to her and because she didn't felt like I was a, a very safe friendly guy. So she wanted me on stage on screen with her at all times. But the producer didn't want me on stage on screen at any times. <laughs> so so he framed it such that I was always next to her but I was just off screen. <laughs> and so you can often, if you watch it now, you can see my arm flap into screen right next to Zarina Dreams over and over and over again. But I'm in it for like half a second, maybe. Uh, <laughs> it, it, he, he the, the producer really didn't like me or the director, I guess. Um, I think it was Jeff Sass. That guy, wow. <laughs> yeah, so, so, they, so I, I worked on that and they gave me a wonderful credit, like production manager or something like that very, very generous credit, uh, left Troma to go back to college. And the next year, they called me up and said, hey, we, we rewrote Tromeo and Juliet. You want to you wanna come work on it? Uh, I didn't want to come work for Troma again, but I stopped in for a day or two of the shoot and appeared in one shot or two shots, maybe, very briefly.
1: I, I saw you, I I rewatched Tromeo and Juliet the other day, just specifically so I can find you. And I you're definitely in one shot.
0: <laughs> great, great. And, and that's I don't look for me anywhere else. It was, it's just one shot. Um I haven't seen it in years and years, but but where yeah, James Gunn's brother brains someone with some pool balls and a sock or something like that.
1: Yeah, he uh and you're standing standing uh at a table and you give the the trauma surprised, frightened reaction like oh no
0: <laughs> which was so great and the other right next to me in that shot is noah scalen who designed most of the mid to late 90s trauma uh, video covers and is now a, still a great designer and I think there's someone else in the shot who I think was the trauma receptionist at the time. Uh, But I don't remember who she was or what. Yeah.
1: When you were working in the trauma offices, did you shoot anything else for that might've like been on a VHS or, or like one of those weird features?
0: Yeah. All the love you can, um, which was shot at the Cannes film festival. I've seen it once and it, it was over 10 years ago but apparently i'm in that a bunch um with because i was hanging out a lot with peter george the director of surf nazis must die and the starlet i can't remember her name but uh, the starlet of maniac nurses find ecstasy uh and the mr uh mr x madame x lady x the star of uh, Vegas Vegas in space. space, Um and, and so we were all in the the all the love you can here and there nice but yeah that was it for shooting in the trauma office back on my first first round with trauma in my
1: 20s (laughs) well what made you want to come back to trauma for poultry geist
0: i said i would never come back i my whole from eight years old until 20 my dream was to make a movie and from 15 to 20, my dream was to make a, a movie in the style of Lloyd Kaufman and Michael Hertz. And then working in the trauma office where yeah, I don't want to spoil too much for anyone who's, who's still going to work there, but, but it's not exactly the most gleeful, inspiring experience. <laughs> and you have, you have wonderful people like Maris Hertz, you know, true stars who, who are supportive and wonderful. And, and then you've got some more negative aspects. Um, or great people like Lloyd, who is completely insane. And and one of, you know, my favorite people and my least favorite people at the same time. Um, but, but so, so after working at Trauma, I said, I never want to work in film again, if this is what working in film is like. Now, I assume working in film is not always like it is at trauma, but, but, but it was for me. And and so I I said, no, I'll go do something else. I'll work in technology. There's this thing called the internet that people are talking about. Maybe (laughs) I'll work on that. So I went off and worked on the internet for another, for eight years, uh, starting this uh, video game website called GameSpot. And after eight years at GameSpot, I I was sick of working in technology. I had these dreams of, of, again, of of making a film. I said, you know, I, I, to the woman I was dating at the time, I, I said, you know, I, I would love to make a movie. And she said, great, make one. I said, well, I, maybe I'll go back to trauma. She said, you swore you would never go back to trauma. You swore to me you would never go back to trauma. I said, okay, okay, I won't go back to trauma. But I was in, in Nashville. I was working, I was making a documentary about Islam in Kentucky and a, a bunch of uh Uh, Muslim refugees living in a small town in Kentucky. Uh, It was an interesting topic, but the documentary was going nowhere. And I was living in Kentucky, miserable, uh, hanging out with people who were snorting Oxycontin, and really rabble rousers. And I heard Lloyd Kaufman was going to be in Nashville. And so so I drive to Nashville and meet up with him for a drink. And he, he's kind of drunk. He's had a couple of drinks. And he starts telling me about this cursed film production he's been working on for four years about uh, chicken zombies. And it's called Poultry Geist Attack of the Chicken Zombies. Yeah, that's what it was called. Yeah. I th- I, or Attack of the Chicken Dead, Attack of the Chicken Zombies.
1: Attack of the Chicken Zombies. And he, he, he pitches it to me in this
0: bar in Nashville. And we're sitting there with a guy who's just back from Afghanistan on his third tour of duty in Afghanistan and, and some young lady who's a, a, a trauma, you know, wannabe starlet and, and Lloyd and me and Lloyd, Lloyd says, you know what, you should come to New York, come to New York. You're a smart guy. Same thing he said to me in, in Cannes, you know, 10 <laughs> years earlier. Uh, you should come to New York and, and you should work on the film. And I'm like, well, that, that's an idea. And we're drunk and, and we joke about it. And, but hey, I start thinking about it. I, I keep thinking about it. So I decide, I decide either way, leave Kentucky, move to New York. Um, New York's a much better city for me. And yeah, I, I call Loy and, Lloyd and say, look, let, let's uh, talk about this idea, this chicken zombie thing. He says, okay, great. So I come to the trauma office and he says, well, here's your desk, here's the script, read it and and give me notes. And it's like, no, we're we're just here to talk about the idea. He's like, no, 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 fuck that, fuck that. Just read the script, I need a producer, I, I need you. And so he convinced me in like eight words to take a job that paid literally no money working 18 hours a day uh, you know to make this chicken zombie masterpiece and my god it was was a fucking it it was a a miserable experience one of the worst experiences of my life and my god I wouldn't
1: trade it for any
0: experience in the world
1: I I liken work into a trauma movie as like kind of going to war and other people (laughs) like No one else can quite relate unless you've worked on a trauma movie, because it's, you know, the most miserable experiences that you can have, but also some of the most rewarding experiences you can ever have. And like the angriest you'll ever be and the most overjoyed you'll ever be is on the set of a trauma movie.
0: I agree completely. I mean, it really is like going to war. And it's also like, you know, joining a cult religion. I mean, John Medeiros, the, the, the catering major, and I from Poultry Guys talk a lot about cult religions. And the set of Poultry Guys was like a cult religion mm-hmm. with Lloyd as this, you know, godlike figure, me as the head priest, you know, beating people into submission. And having people, you know, weeping in front of me and pleading to to stay there. Um, People were sleeping on the floor, literally changing their names to things like Beast or, uh, you know, I can't remember. Everyone had fake
1: names at the time, if I
0: remember. It was
1: was weird uh, when the day when everybody on the set decided just to get mohawks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I got a haircut and I just because I had long hair and didn't get a Mohawk. But then everyone lined up after me to get haircuts from the same person. But everyone else got Mohawks. Why didn't I get a damn Mohawk? That would
1: have
0: <laughs> like been everyone, awesome.
1: Everyone's like, oh, I'm on a trauma movie. I don't have to like report to my regular job. I might as well get a, a Mohawk.
0: <laughs> and people I mean, people like Ira took out a loan to move across the country to work on a trauma movie for free. Uh, um, Becky Katie quit her job at, at Payless Shoes uh, to move across the country to work on a trauma film. Bitta moved across the world to to work on a trauma film. A bunch yeah. of people did. Kevin moved from, from Australia, I think, to work on yeah. a trauma film. All of them for free. And a couple of people ended up getting paid. I got paid. Um, I think I got paid a thousand bucks a month, but my rent in New York for my apartment was 1100. So I, I I was losing a hundred bucks a month (laughs) I'm working for drama. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I did. I did get a piece of a piece of a percentage of the film. So I've, I've made a fair share of money from the film. I've, I've made um, I think about $420 uh, (laughs) profit from the film.
1: the my biggest expense from working on the movie was so this is the, for the kids out there listening this was the early days of cell phones and the the church front yard had roaming zones in it and so we lived in this abandoned church and i paced when i talked on the phone so in the the front area which is like the only place there wasn't people hanging out um i could talk on the phone with relative quiet but i would pace so i'd wander in and out of roaming zones as i was talking and my uh, parents called up there like what the fuck is up with this phone
0: bill <laughs> do do you, do you remember how much your phone bill was
1: It was over a thousand dollars. What?
0: Wait, wait! Over a thousand dollars for the for you were there for what? Three months?
1: Uh, like three and a half, four months. Yeah, for that whole time. Oh my god! Yeah,
0: (laughs) that is insane. Because yeah, we we all had limited minutes. Um, I'm sure I had trauma. I'm sure I had the budget pay for my minutes, my extra minutes, but no, like. Trauma wasn't going to pay for everyone's minutes because there were a hundred people working on the film, and I knew that was going to be a problem. I felt bad for everyone, but you know what were we going to do?
1: I didn't even think of like asking for reimbursement. It's a trauma movie. Like I'd rather that go to a few more buckets of blood. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. The buckets of blood. Lloyd was so cautious about every element of the budget. I before the film started. One day Lloyd said, we need a budget, put together a budget. And so in an hour at lunch or whatever, I put together a budget. I had no idea how to put together a movie budget. I just, I winged it. I I guessed at figures. And a couple months later, we were actually making the film and and Lloyd said, where's the budget? I said, what budget? "The, The budget you created. I was like, that thing? He's like, yeah, it's our budget. It turns out that was our actual budget, and he was so strict about every element of the budget. I would try and fudge numbers and move things around. Um, you know, if we saved money here, I could put it there. But but one day I, I said to him, "Okay, we've we've you know we've bought X amount of buckets, uh, gallons of caro syrup. And he screamed at me. He said, that's not enough. We need more fake blood. This has to be the bloodiest movie in history. By twice, by three times as much. And just it was yelling at me because he wanted you guys to have more blood.
1: It was funny. I remember the meetings that that we we would go with you and like the heads of all the departments. And you're like, you need to find a way to get this for free. You need to find a way to get this for free. Blood boys, go buy more blood. <laughs> and we would just look at each other like, all right.
0: <laughs> you know, every person on the set envied you
1: and Richard.
0: And and and, and Kevin, I guess Kevin. Kevin and
1: up. Kyle, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, Kyle was, yeah. Kyle, Kyle Frieden. Um, you know, everyone on set envied you guys because you guys had a guaranteed position. There was no way you guys were going to be gotten rid of unless you, you royally messed everything up, but you guys did a great job. And you guys had the most fun. I'm sure it wasn't easy. I'm sure it was hard work and messy, but but my God, people were so jealous of the, the, the two or four of you guys.
1: It was, yeah, like... We felt like the rock stars of the set. <laughs> it's like... You really, you were. You really were. So it's like, all right, well, you got the, the same four or five, uh, you know, PAs sweeping the same section of floor. And then we're making Blood with the Suicide Girls. So...
0: <laughs> you made Blood with the Suicide Girls?
1: Yeah, they when they first showed up, they um, were walking around and just seeing everything that was going on. They're like, okay, well, here's like where they're making beaks and here's this and this is where they're making fake blood and they're like oh we want to make some fake blood and they're like come on
0: oh. in <laughs> oh my gosh one of those suicide girls uh zoe was that her name like
1: zoey
0: I uh, callie's i think she was callie watts's sister so so darling so cute um yeah yeah i i i think i briefly met her you know, I, I was just always running around and doing office stuff i didn't get to do any of the fun stuff like make blood or hang out with suicide girls
1: <laughs> there was so you, i'm sure you remember everybody on set was um always looking busy i don't know if they were necessarily wow. working but like you would see somebody like wiping down the same spot on, on a wall that nobody touched like 30 times a day. The only time I ever saw anybody just, everybody just stop working was the suicide girls decided they were going to go play sprinkler volleyball in the back of the church. And so they turned a sprinkler on, they were playing volleyball and everyone was just standing out there. And they're like, this is a nice break.
0: Uh, um, Zach. What?
1: <laughs> what (laughs) what you're all fired where was
0: i this is (laughs) horrible.
1: i think we were like don't tell andy we'll get in trouble
0: (laughs) you would have i promise you i would have been so angry seeing people have so much fun and being so jealous of people having fun i was just i was constantly living in fear of lloyd living in fear of everything fucking up I, I was just terrified. I was having you've read my journals, you know. I was having the these recurring nightmares all through the production of poultry guys, because I was terrified of everything going wrong. And I didn't know how to manage it. And I, I don't think I'd manage it any better today. Something of that to any time I saw people having fun or relaxing or joking around, it made me angry. Because so I was jealous. I I I, I and and, you know, I wanted to be having fun, but I couldn't. And so you guys shouldn't either. If you guys are having fun, that means something's not being done. Oh, oh I re- the anger. I feel the anger building up in my chest. <laughs> it's like I haven't felt this in years.
1: <laughs> we're, we're both going to have to go to therapy again.
0: <laughs> oh, no. oh yeah, You don't think I've been in therapy since then? I mean, the, the scars... <laughs> the physical i've got physical scars from the production but but the emotional scars they when i got back from buffalo i could not walk into a shop and talk to a stranger my anxiety was so great my social anxiety was so huge i i felt my entire life was was meaningless after getting back from uh buffalo it was and- weird
1: that was such a weird time coming back from buffalo cuz i felt like like oh everybody's just doing like day-to-day stuff yeah like i couldn't sleep on a bed for a month i had to sleep on my floor like where
0: where, where did you during the production of poultry I, I slept in a bed i slept in a lovely bed with with a lovely partner uh, you know i a lovely where did you sleep
1: so when i first started out in the basement um, and then all of them, the, in the blood- basement
0: of the church, which, which was an auditorium under, under a church.
1: Yes. So okay. I, I was in there, you know, shoulder to shoulder with everybody else. And the
0: lights never turned off. If I remember in that auditorium.
1: No. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't stop working until about three in the morning. And then we'd start working again around six.
0: <laughs> so you would, you would, you would sleep for three hours. Mm-hmm
1: yeah it was about three hour nights typically for... that,
0: sorry zach how much, how much
1: were you being paid um you said on the contract that we would get a dollar but i have never got that dollar
0: <laughs> yes <laughs> but, yeah yeah
1: <laughs> but we got lucky so um the blood boys like we kind of, we kind of had rock star status. So there was times where like the blood boys need to get their rest because tomorrow's like a massacre day or something. So we ended up taking over the general's office, which was in the same <sighs> basement, but it was sort of secluded. And more importantly, there was a desk in the middle of the room. So all of the blood boys, when we would go to bed, all of our heads were underneath the general's desk. And that was like our privacy from the world out in your the
0: privacy was having your head under a
1: desk with three other people and larry the sound guy
0: <laughs> larry, larry the wait larry the sound guy didn't live with the crew in some fancy apartment across the yeah town? he
1: he stayed down there with us
0: <laughs> wow so he, he was i mean i i have questions i, I have functional questions it, there, there it's a bunch it's like 50 young men all living together like are dudes jerking off like what, what's the scenario there
1: the shower didn't drain very well
0: oh my <laughs> lord and there was one but there was one shower for all 50 or 70 people <laughs> this is disgusting okay okay we can move on
1: and then you i i have it on good authority that so there <laughs> i'm sure you remember down in the basement, there is that men's room, but it had a stall yeah. with a closing door. Okay. So I have it on good authority that there were some PAs that would that would rub one out in there during meetings, though, because people would come during in and, meetings. Yeah, people would come in and be like, So where what is the deal with like the special effect? Where is this costume? Where is this prop? And they'd be talking to the person they thought was taking a dump. <laughs>
0: Oh my lord! But what? Are, I know some. There were some couplings on the set. These are questions I've wondered for years. There were some couplings on the set. Where did these couplings happen? In the same location?
1: That I don't know. I I was like too busy not getting fired to notice anybody yeah, on the set. Yeah. I know I know crew members would find interest with PAS or not PAS with actor persons with extras. Uh, who didn't work on the movie because they would have showers and privacy so there would be hookups but it was mostly so they could have a private shower and a bed to sleep in
0: oh my gosh wait you mean you mean people would hook up with locals so that they could go and sleep somewhere else in the locals house
1: and take a shower
0: oh my lord i stayed in a hotel room in my diaries i say once i think it was like three times but but in my diaries i say it was once so maybe i'm misremembering because it was so magnificent it's just been blown out of proportion multiplied in my mind but uh yeah i I remember taking one really good shower maybe three really good showers uh but always in hotel rooms that i was paying for out of my own pocket
1: i left buffalo covered in blood (laughs) (laughs) I don't think my real shower came until I was like back in Colorado. It was
0: disgusting. Hey, I, I I think I got a yeast infection from working on the set in my armpits. Uh, yeah, I, I would have to look on Wikipedia or you know WebMD to see if this is accurate. But I think I got a yeast infection in my armpits from not bathing.
1: My pillow got black mold on it. And so, like, I had like a breathing thing towards the end of shooting. Oh no. (laughs) And then I but I remembered there was uh you'd we'd film all this crazy stuff, get covered in blood and glue and chicken feathers. And then it's like, well, it's not our turn in the rotation for the showers. So we would all do what we called the trauma shower, which was uh hand sanitizer and axe body spray. (laughs)
0: i remember when i was working with joe uh uh, joe Flyshaker. he we couldn't work out how to give him a shower because he was supposed to be drenched in blood and 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 lots of lots of bodily fluids and and uh shit and all this stuff and we couldn't work out a shower that he could fit into because he's a very large guy and uh he eventually said look andy I'm okay if you just want to use a hose, if we can find some privacy, but please don't refer to it as hosing me down, Um, which which I thought was lovely, but but it was hard to get a shower, to get access to the showers there. Um, People would show up to the set thinking they were gonna have fun and party and be drinking. But we ran a very tight ship and it was miserable, disgusting living uh, with very little fun.
1: I remember one pretty brutal day of filming some effects. Um, You came up to the Blood Boys and you were like, hey guys, you're not hearing this from me, but I know you're tired. If you need to run over to the corner store and grab a beer, fucking slam that before you get back here and go to bed that was from me that was from you that That was like one of the nicest things like that was said
0: (laughs) that's such a such a cult leader kind of thing to do to be like (laughs) i'm gonna let you do this amazing thing it's like the most mundane fucking thing get a beer i I turned
1: i turned 21 on set and i didn't tell anybody because i didn't want to get in trouble for the no drinking rule oh my gosh
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, every night, Gabe, Caleb, Kyle, me, and Jason, Demon Scarlet, Fouke, Fuke, Fouke, Fouke, Sorry, Fouke. Sorry, Jason. It's been a long time. Uh, the five of us would crowd in a car with the lights off, and we would sip cans of beer surreptitiously in a car parked down the street so that no one could see us. i i I, personally i needed a beer to to counteract all the i've been drinking coffee you know for 23 hours or whatever every day and so i would need a beer or two to knock me out but so sad that that that's the control trauma had over us
1: well and then we all learned how to do like the the 15 minute map it's like like oh i we're driving to set i am sleeping in the car all the way to set yes and it's like oh i'm not needed on on camera i'm gonna sit against this wall and fall asleep like it even happened to lloyd like he fell asleep like leaning against a wall
0: i, th- I think that was because he was drunk though um <laughs> <laughs> no not really not really but he, the, 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 yeah um uh john 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 why am i blanking on his name who was my best friend on set uh, in the office John landis yes God John landis I, I, every day I would I would say John I'm going to disappear for 15 minutes and for the entire production he thought I was going off to have a rendezvous <laughs> with someone And every day he thought this for the entire production and years later he said remember when you would sneak away for those to go have sex every, you know every day, I was like what are you talking about yeah you'd say i, I need to sneak away for 15 minutes it's like are you i had sex like once during the entire production like, no you did every day he thought he thought i, I was having <laughs> sex when i was just having these desperate naps uh you know this guy was going home every night to his mom's place but <laughs> i was <laughs> i was just yeah looking for 15 minutes of peace
1: do you have any crazy stories that i might not have heard about? from uh, any juicy goss from set
0: okay here's a good story this is a sexy story uh uh uh, joe Flyshaker, when he was coming up to buffalo he he called me and said look andy tell me what's the orgy situation (laughs) i was like what the orgy said what kind of orgies are going on what what's the sex situation is there a lot of sex it's like, what are you talking about? I said, well, I don't want to take part. I, you know, I, I I, don't take part. I'm a big guy. I'm, I'm not taking part in it. But I, I do like to watch. And I like <laughs> to take pictures. And, and my God, it was the most wonderful thing to hear and the, the, the most awkward conversation to be <laughs> at, To be like, no, it's all sad. Men who have not slept in weeks. I don't <laughs> think there are any, if there are orgies, I haven't heard about them and they're keeping them secret from me. So, which makes me wonder what the sets were like on the other trauma productions.
1: Right. <laughs>
0: uh, I mean, a bunch of people were mugged on the trauma sets uh, during Poultry cool Geist. Uh, I, re- I remember,
1: yeah, I remember you saying it's like, if you're going to the corner store, you need a buddy. If you're going to, there was a gas station or not gas station, but like a convenience store bodega right across the street from set. And you're like, even if you're going there, you need a buddy. And we all were like, I don't know, maybe he's just being overprotective. And like one of our first days there, we saw a car like pull over, grab a dude who was just walking down the street, pull him in and take off. And it was like, Oh fuck. Well, we're going to (laughs) have, have the beast walk us across the street so I can get like a, cranberry juice in a Slim Jim.
0: Yeah, it was. I got so many emails from concerned Buffalo citizens after they heard we were filming at that location at Bailey and Hewitt. Because at the time, I'm not sure about now, maybe Buffalo is seeing a resurgence. But at the time, Buffalo was one of the saddest, worst cities in America in terms of crime. And this was one of the worst parts of Buffalo in terms of crime. Uh, I mean, there were drive-by shootings. There were Oh, it, it, was, it was very rough. The only reason we ended up there was I spent three or four months calling McDonald's or, or film commissioners around America looking for a McDonald's that had shut down recently but not been torn down or converted into a Starbucks. And most of them were quickly converted into Starbucks. I think that, that was just a thing at the time. And the only one I could find that's a lie. I found one in the Mojave Desert, but it had no air conditioning. And we were filming in the middle of the summer. I found one in Kentucky and Lloyd did not want to film in Kentucky. I'm not sure why. Great state. Uh, and I found one in Buffalo. But Lloyd kept saying, what about somewhere sexy like Florida? You know, We, we could <laughs> shoot in Florida. Well, there, there are none that I can find in Florida. How about somewhere fun? He wanted a fun city, a fun state, you know, a college town. Which Buffalo is a college town? Uh, But but the one in Buffalo was fantastic. And the people of Buffalo were amazing.
1: It was crazy how the locals, like, just embraced all of us.
0: We had hundreds of, of actor persons, extras, showing up time and time again. We had people giving us their houses, their furniture you know when people heard that we didn't have beds they brought beds to us it was amazing Uh, buffalo was you know best place is awesome
1: Um, even even
0: if we did almost get shot on a
1: daily basis Yeah, as long as we had the beast with us, we were we yeah. were okay. <laughs> Thank God. One one thing I do I do want to publicly have on record is I do want to apologize for the very last day of shooting on poultrygeist. So if you watch the documentary, um, the the location, the guy who owned the McDonald's decided to take the the American Chicken Bunker sign off of the building.
0: No, no, it wasn't the guy who owned it. It was a carpenter who helped us make the sign, printed it up for us for free, put it up for us for free, and then decided we looked like we were done filming to take it down for us for free. The greatest, most charitable man in the world. It it kind of sucks that we were not done filming.
1: (laughs) And it was the last day of shooting. Like I remember getting the call sheet and it's like blood boys not needed. And it's like, oh my God, they don't need us on set. They don't need us to even like send a little like carton of blood. Like we don't have anything to do. So at the same time, there was a comic con going on in Toronto and um, some of the trauma team, who was working on poultry guys who were Canadian were running the trauma booth. So they, they were like, Hey, um, come up, we'll sneak you in. So they snuck us in through an emergency exit through the green room to get into this comic book convention. But we didn't know the drama that was unfolding on set with the sign missing. And you were, I think you guys got the sign back, but you, it was like you and 90 pound Nick Koning, who are trying to bolt this like thousand pound sign back up on the roof of the chicken bunker you're frantically calling you're like where the fuck are you guys we need you on set and it's like and i was like there's no way like i i'm in toronto i can't I didn't drive. I like I'm along for the ride. I can't make it back. I felt so bad, oh. especially after watching the documentary and see, <laughs> seeing you guys trying to put that back up on there.
0: <laughs> oh my Lord. Well, you, you do not worry. I I've,
1: I've entirely forgotten
0: that. I mean, I remember the moment uh, you know, what I remember is there was a big party the night before and everyone was doing, taking e-pills, and their Molly, whatever they call it now, and having these crazy adventures. I kept getting these drunk dials from people uh, at the party. I was just like, how can you be at a party? We have half a day of filming tomorrow.
1: Do you, I do want you to talk about Lloyd's first rule of production, safety to humans, and how you were uh, a victim of that rule not being followed necessarily.
0: No, that rule was followed. Safety to humans was always followed. I mean, as much as we could. So so we could not afford, afford to hire stunt people. And, but we had stunts. We had a lot of great stunts in the movie. <clears throat> and, okay, so we couldn't afford stunt people. So we were all going to do our own stunts. And, you know, I wanted to have a grisly death in poltergeist. And I, Lloyd, Lloyd, bless his heart, he said i was a terrible actor he, he actually said i was the worst actor he'd ever seen <laughs> and gabe gabe backed him up gabe actually called me and said andy my god you're the wor-. gabe the writer and co-director of the film said you're the worst actor i've ever seen and i'm an i'm an okay actor come on okay i'm a bad actor but but so we come up with this great death for me where I'm gonna have my face deep fried and my, my testicles deep fried, ripped out and deep fried by a zombie chicken. And we're, we're doing this scene and my face is thrown into the deep fryer. And as it comes up, water or whatever was in the deep fryer flies all over the room. And my face is thrown back into the deep fryer again. And again, water splashes all over the room. And again, a third time. And then Lloyd screams, do it again, do it again. A fourth time, which we weren't prepared for. And I, I think I had taken a step back or maybe I slipped in all the water that had splashed around. But um, next thing you know, my head is being slammed into the, the range hood, the oven hood range, yeah. whatever it's called. The thing above the oven. And my head is slammed into it. And I collapsed to the floor and all I can see is white. And I don't really black out, but I but but I lose a couple seconds and I stand up and everything is silent and everyone's just staring at me. And I'm like, I, I think I'm okay. And was like, uh I don't know about that. And unbeknownst to me, I had this huge gaping gash in my forehead. And it was like, you know, probably a quarter of an inch, half an inch gash in my forehead. Uh, So I get rushed to the hospital and I go into the ER and they do triage on me where everything stops. Everyone runs out of the hospital. And it's because I'm drenched in fake blood. (laughs) And I, it looks like I've been in this crazy industrial accident where you know twenty people have died, people are coming out. How many people were injured? <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, just me. And so when they realized what had happened, one of the doctors comes out and says, "Wait, are you working on the the new film from Lloyd Kaufman, the director of The Toxic Avenger?" <laughs> and people, the doctors were so excited, and and I just wanted to be sewed up so I could get back to set. <laughs> that yeah, was I- it. That was it.
1: So. What was the deal with the mafioso guy?
0: Oh my god! Yeah. Uh, what was his name? R- R- Ray? Ray. 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 Oh man, Ray. So so when I went to Buffalo, one of the first people I met was this cat Ray, who he dressed like he was in the mafia, and he had you know big jewelry that he would wear, yeah, you yeah, know, like mafia type jewelry, not Buffalo. yeah rings
1: and he Uh, drove around in a cadillac like a really nice cadillac
0: yeah which and he had a baseball bat in the cadillac and he had he once had me go into the glove compartment he was like i need the map where's the map and open the glove compartment i think he just wanted me to open the glove compartment because he had a gun in there and he i think he wanted me to see his gun and he he would talk about the strip clubs he had owned and the strippers that he knew, you know.
1: And he, and so in the set of Poultry Geist, everyone out there should visualize. It's a bunch of grungy looking 20 somethings that haven't bathed. And then this dude wearing like nice suits, like looking like he is from the Sopranos.
0: <laughs> and he shows up one day. I, I, I think I, you read this. I think I sent you this article, but Shows up one day and and he's going to help us uh, set up some tubes to make it look like he, he, squibs were going to be way too expensive for our budget. So he was going to set up tubing to make it look like people had been shot so that blood would explode from the tubes and it would be very realistic. We were going to film it in the backyard and he pulls out of his bag a real handgun. He says, here, we're going to use this handgun. For the to make it look like they've been shot. And I freaked out. It's like, no, we can't use a handgun. We can't. He says, okay, okay, we have to put this somewhere. Can I put it in your desk drawer? So I put it in my desk drawer. I lock it there. Uh, we, we do the, we film his tubing stuff. It doesn't really work that well. He says, okay, I'll come back tomorrow. I'll come back tomorrow. He leaves and he forgets to take his gun with him. <laughs> he comes back the next day to pick up the gun and he brings me a gold watch. He says, here, Andy, this watch is for you. As he takes his gun back that I've had hidden away from the police or the government or whoever was looking for the gun in my desk drawer. I don't know. So he gives me this gold watch and I felt really weird about it. I was talking to Bitta. Bitta, one of my best friends. Uh, uh, Bitta, who, who, she, she worked on the special effects. Uh, she f- moved from from Stockholm from Sweden to work on poultry guys. And she was saying, yes, is it's strange. Ray asked me to hold the gun to feel how heavy it was. I was like, what what do you mean hold it? She, you know to, like as if I was shooting it. It's like, so your <laughs> fingerprints are on this gun that he asked me to hold for to hide for twenty four hours. She's like, yes it was this weird moment of realization and that that possibly we were involved in something really weird
1: there was so he was showing us um he made the initial blood cannons that we all used on set and so he was showing us he's like this is the best way to get a blood splat and you know every all of us are kind of snickering we're like Like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, what's his deal? And then somebody, I don't remember who, but someone was like, hey, Ray, what's your job? And he's like, waste management. And we all just were like, I'm not fucking, we're like, we're done fucking around. We're not gonna. Oh my
0: God. You know, he, he, I don't know. But the sweetest guy, he he was really nice. But like, there was the questions. (laughs) His house was filled with trauma DVDs and uh partially constructed skeletons um that were definitely not real these were like you know home crafted skeletons that he would make with his little kid who was like 8 years
1: old at the time so i i i have this memory from set and i don't remember who said it but um when ron jeremy was coming on set there was just kind of like <laughs> hushed words uh going to the cast and crew is like hey if you're female don't be alone on set with ron um how do you feel about him being in the movie now that like all the you know all everything's come to light with him
0: that's weird that you say that um yeah yeah, yeah, that's weird that you say that about the warning don't be alone with him if you're female because i don't actually remember that but it strikes a weird chord with me where i think i think it's something that i was very aware of and have forgotten um holy shit that's weird it's sort of this haunting chilling feeling uh th- there was a uh my next door neighbor a couple of years ago used to work with Uh, she she was a playgirl, uh, playgirl, playmate, wherever she, she was a bunny and she would go to parties at the mansion. And she said she had uh, like every bunny had a big sister at the playboy mansion who would teach them the ropes. And, and she remembers her first party there, Bill Cosby was at the party and it was back in the sixties, I guess. And the, her big sister told her, don't drink anything bill gives you if he gives you a drink it's got a mickey in it like it like it'll it'll knock you out and so bill cosby it was very widely known and now i'm wondering back in 2005 when we were filming poultry guys did we all know about ron jeremy um i mean a large part of me is kind of like Look, the dude's an infamous porn star. Of course, he's going to be problematic when it comes to sex. But did we know that problematic? Did we know he was a serial rapist? I don't know. And I I hear these stories since then of, uh, like, we hang out at the Rainbow Room here in L.A. sometimes. Yeah. At the Rainbow Room, the management would tell, when Ron was there at the bar, which he would be, they would tell women, don't go into the bathrooms with him. He's gonna invite you there. And did we know that? I don't know. But the chill that I'm feeling when you said that makes me think I did know that, which makes me feel kind of kind of terrible.
1: Not, not, to, not to make you feel terrible, no, like I just, I just when all the stuff came to light, it was one of those like just recessed in the back of my head memories that like came up. I was like, huh, I haven't probably paid any attention to that thought since it happened on two thousand and five.
0: Yeah, and and you know, two thousand five was a different era to some extent culturally. So in two thousand and five, did we think it was presumed? that a, 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 a celebrated porn star was going to be kind of rapey because rapey used to be, and maybe still is, I'm not sure, but but was an adjective used about certain people. I mean, I can think of other people who claim to have worked on Kooltree guys who we referred to as rapey. And were these people actually that? Possibly. Um Geez
1: not to be a downer of now uh, Now
0: i'm going i'm really going back into,
1: into uh, therapy now zach <laughs> sorry slash you're welcome I, maybe <laughs> <laughs> no i yeah no it was like i remember you had like your your chapter about him in the in the book i have a a funny ron jeremy anecdote from set though uh which you'll get a giggle about so he's he's on set you know he loves to spin a yarn to anybody who will listen and it's Ron jeremy so of course people are standing around wanting to hear his stories and he's talking about being in boondock saints and and he was he was like yeah and i'm talking to troy duffy and did you know he's making a sequel to boondock saints called all saints day boondock saints 2 we're like oh that's cool he's like yeah i'm talking to him about being in it and then someone was like you died in the first one and he, the look on his face was like he never that never even occurred to him and he's like well maybe it could be a flashback or something <laughs> you yeah,
0: know oh my god well after reading poultry guys he wanted to play the part of of uh of Denny who is repeatedly referred to as the black manager of the restaurant <laughs> and he wanted to play this part so much um for for you know for a while and, and it, we were going to rewrite the part for for ron jeremy i think he was he supposed to be his first job as well and which would have been funny with ron jeremy but
1: yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's funny oh i, I have a joe fly shaker one too from set so i remember like being starstruck that joe flyshaker is there because it's like that's michael hers from all the dvds it's the first action star so me and uh one of the other blood boys kyle uh we're like we like we got to get a picture with joe and then you know there's no there's nothing secret on a trauma set word gets around and i remember you came up to me in the hallway at the church you're like did you take a picture with joe i remember you're like i asked nobody to take you know, photos of Joe. And you know, it's like, uh no, no, I definitely didn't take a picture of Wait, Joe Flyshaker. Why do
0: I not want people taking pictures with Joe Flyshaker?
1: I think you were concerned of like, you know, him not looking good or you know, people making fun of him or something. Huh. But I I remember Cause, you because I
0: I took a picture with him. Yeah. It it might have it might have been that I didn't want him distracted because he was so he was anxious about filming. Joe, may he rest in peace. He he lived a great life, uh, even with his health problems. Um, you know, he the poor guy had I think two or three lines in the film, and he had the script for a couple months, and he never managed to learn those lines. Uh, compared to Ron Jeremy don't you know shouldn't be complimenting ron jeremy but who showed up read a page of the script and 20 minutes later shot that one page speech in one take perfectly verbatim yeah. uh poor joe Fleischaker had three short lines and never managed to remember them uh and, and he, he he knew this and as he drove up he would call me weeping from the car uh saying i i don't know if i can do this andy i don't know it's i'm uncomfortable and and i can't remember the lines i I felt bad for the guy
1: i'm i'm just happy that i got a chance to work with him and he was super nice and appreciative you know that i that we would you know take time to even stop and talk to him so
0: he loved he loved people being fans of his and yeah, he loved that. You know, I was a fan of his. I was super excited to work with him. Yeah. More excited about him than Ron Jeremy. Like, Ron Jeremy, I'd seen, you know, jumping ladies in the movies, but but Ron Jeremy never really meant anything to me. He he was a cultural icon, but he never meant anything to me personally. But Joe Flyshaker from Trauma's War, like yeah. he meant something to me deep in my in my heart. So I, I was so much more excited to, to meet and work with joe than ron
1: it's gonna sound weird there was two trauma icons i was super excited to get my picture with was was joe fly shaker and then the kabuki man car <laughs> <laughs> like i was like did oh you man. get your
0: picture with the kabuki man car
1: i did i kabuki was like car? it's the car it's the kabuki man car when they drove it on set i was like oh man i know what that's for <laughs> nice
0: yeah that was such a nightmare trying to find but 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 I, I think Beth Beth Charlesworth found it, I think. Have you seen the film, the horror short Le Bagman? Yes. And so the the guys who made that they also made what are their other films?
1: Um, Turbo Kid. And Turbo Kid, which which made
0: huge waves. It, it was a great cult film.
1: And Summer and, of '84.
0: Which I haven't seen. Is that out? Did they finish? It's that? on. That it's out? on Shutter. Okay. So <clears throat> these kids who made these incredible films true artists they 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 were in touch with trauma before and and trauma were big fans of lebeg men so when we were making poetry guys i reached out to them and i said hey look could you guys we've got this this climactic zombie massacre in the american chicken bunker can you think about um how you know some some effects that we could do or some shots that we could do could you help us out they ended up drawing up i think it was like 16 pages of storyboards, for an incredible massacre, and this is the kind of massacre that that it's like a wet dream massacre, where you know someone gets a mop shoved through their through their butt and it comes out the mouth, but then the the mop proceeds in the next shot to what are those old cartoon things where one thing affects another that affects another that oh like another? a Rube Goldberg. Rube Goldberg. Yeah. This was basically a Rube Goldberg of a massacre scene where the whole thing made contextual sense from start to end. And it was beautiful. And all it would have taken to shoot was planning and organization. And Lloyd was like, fuck this. We're not shooting this. (laughs) And I've still got these storyboards. I can send them to you. They are a work of art. And we lost that. Um, and, And so, so, what well, reminded me of this was the apartment where well i i want to go received. i want to
1: go back to that real quick so they showed yeah. up on set uh one day you know i i think they knew that their massacre scene wasn't um gonna be shot uh, yeah. but i think lloyd or maybe you were like well come down anyways and get a turn, be a chicken zombie in the movie and you can see them in a shot they're like eating somebody in the drive-through window it's like oh who knew those kids would grow up to make you know one of the most popular cult films after poultry yeah. guys um and they uh but i remember lloyd like like they're in chicken zombie makeup they're like all right we're gonna get killed in a trauma movie and then we just shot charlotte's death in the soda machine which looked absolutely terrible and lloyd looks at them he he like has no faith in any of us at that moment he's like the bag man you're here you fix this what what should we do how do we do this and they're they just walked on set they're like uh what (laughs) the looks on their face is like uh so trying to figure out a special effect in that last minute those
0: poor kids those poor kids but yeah, true rock stars.
1: I mean, if if they yeah. listen to this, I want to say like Le Bagman was one of my inspirational movies that 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 I used to watch all the time to figure out how to do special effects. So that was uh, it was cool seeing them on set. Like it's been a while since Poultrygeist What like like how has it been? Just seeing like people being like that's one of my favorite trauma movies. Like how does that feel?
0: freaks me out i mean i still i i think the film is too long i think the film it it should have been 82 minutes maybe 85. uh but it freaks me out when i see people with tattoos when i go to comic-con and see people dressed up in american chicken bunker costumes When when we when the film played at fantasia film festival in montreal back in 97 i guess No, I mean, 2007. uh, People in line who had not even seen the film were in fanboy costumes. And it was like, holy shit. Uh, I love it. I love it. I love it most of all for Gabe and for Lloyd. I mean, you know, Gabe Friedman, the writer of the film, he spent, I think, eight years trying to get that film made. And Lloyd spent four or five years trying to get it made. Uh, it i mean i'm just so proud of them for having such such a, a vision and and you know it's such an honor to to be able to help them make it come to life
1: yeah it's it's surreal to me like to you know know that it's like i had a little bit to do with someone's favorite trauma movie like that's just crazy to me
0: yeah when I, when i meet people who are like just in I was in a in a karaoke bar in uh, in North Korea in in Pyongyang. and I was in a karaoke bar and I was talking to this American guy there, this six foot four American guy who looked kind of like Abraham Lincoln, the same facial hair. and he 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 says, I forget what he said to me, but he, he, he mentioned Surf Nazis Must Die. He said, hey, if you like Surf Nazis Must Die, you should see this film Poultry Geist. And we're in North Korea, you know, the enemy country to the USA. And he turns to me and says, Poultry Geist? I own two copies of that movie on DVD, one for each of my apartments. And, and you know what? Even more than that, I was at the world premiere of Poultry Geist in New York City. And I didn't correct him that it, it was not the world premiere. He thought it was the world premiere, uh, but but this guy in North Korea, this American who is buddies with Kim Jong Il, yeah, yeah, I mean Kim Jong Un. Um, now he is a poultry guy's fan. I was like, holy shit! <laughs> so years later, years later, I took him to the premiere of *Class of High* Part One in New York and introduced him to Lloyd. And he said that was the greatest day of his life. It was even greater than meeting Kim jong Il, Kim
2: Jong-un,
0: Kim Jong-un, sorry.
1: That's awesome. But, well, I want to pivot a little bit uh, away from uh, Poultry Geist and talk about your magic career. So so instead of performing magic, uh, you know, occult magic of brainwashing a bunch of (laughs) 20-something-year-olds to do your bidding... Uh, You you are a magician
0: now. I'm a magician. Uh, Five years ago, my wife took me into a magic show and a magic at the Magic Castle in Los Angeles. It's this old turn of the century mansion built on the hill in Hollywood, and and it's inside there are like eight magic theaters and five bars and a, a restaurant and. And you just go from theater to theater watching magic shows and it's all done up in turn of the century style. I said, Holy shit, this is the greatest place I've ever been. How can I come back? And they said, well, you have to be a magician, but I'm not a magician. How can I come back? And they said, well, you can sign up and take magic classes. So I really wanted to come back. So I signed up for magic classes and one thing led to another. And after enough magic classes, I realized, holy shit, I'm a magician. Uh, so so I've been a professional magician for about two years now and perform uh conspiracy theory magic shows uh based on the idea that that all of the magic is real, but but using it to pr- prove uh conspiracy theories, such as government mind control or Bigfoot yeah. is real. <laughs> um and Used that to won yeah, uh, close-up magician of the year from the world's largest magicians association, and uh, was featured on Penn and Teller fool us. Uh, I didn't fool them, uh, but but uh, but had great fun, and yeah, it's 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 a fun weird magic thing.
1: Yeah, like anybody out there, I recommend you. Uh, look, looking up like your Penn and Teller uh, stuff or even just looking you up for that because it's a lot of fun and there's a good sense of humor with it too.
0: Yeah. It's all, it's all about MK ultra or brainwashing, you know, these things that John Medeiros and I love to talk about. Uh These are cultish things.
1: Well, I, I think at this point into, uh, into the show, we, we should probably dive into uh the film the film of the 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 episode 1986 uh, is filmed by Rufus Butler set, Setter screenplay
2: is approaching me from behind, and by the time you read this, I may very well be dead. It's all because of my screenplay. I'll try to explain as quickly as possible. It all started a short time ago, when I first arrived here.
1: Here's what Lloyd Kaufman has to say about screenplay in his book, All I Need to Know About Filmmaking, I Learned from the Toxic Avenger. The Troma team believe this is a masterpiece, and has therefore been voted into Troma's unsung masterpiece series. Very original and very bloody. Though because the film is in black and white, the blood is a very dark gray, just like my girlfriend's. Screenplay blurs the boundaries of fiction and reality as a mystery writer screenplay seems to come to life. Holy chimera. Don't you know what a chimera is? Look it up. Recommend. So before we uh, really talk about the movie, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, just kind of how the genius or visionary of Rufus Butler Cedar. I had no idea how, kind of a creative genius he was until like we were talking about this back and forth
0: yeah like he 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 was an art student kid he went to the afi for film he would make these short films he made i don't know four or five short films that would play in film festivals and but he was obsessed with uh george melier
1: yes
0: and um and some Serbian director whose name I've written down, but but he loved the idea of front projection and reversal film. And both of those terms really mean nothing to me. Do you know what those yeah, are? Yeah,
1: so um, front projection or are, are the rear projection stuff that they would do was a special effect technique where um, they would film film something and then have somebody act in front of that um probably one of the more infamous ones i i know uh is like in our modern ones in adventures from babysitting when they're the kids are all climbing the roof of the skyscraper obviously they're not going to have eight-year-olds climbing a skyscraper but they shot somebody filming that and they built the set in front of it uh, to make it look like they're climbing so they did the similar thing where he shot all these plates on on film and or would do this crazy uh, weird stop motion animation and then have people act in front of it
0: and it, 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 it's so creative but it looks like sort of german expressionist film or you know y, y, the old grungy old french cinema uh and it, it's just it looks bizarre but he made it in 1986 pretty much by himself almost
1: yeah and he uh I have a clip here real quick I'm going to play um, about how his father got him into filmmaking.
2: That's my dad playing Al Weiner. Pretty good acting. Who knew? I think he played Caliban in his college production of The Tempest. By the way, my dad's the guy who started me on filmmaking. He was a news reporter and a photographer and sometimes did movie news clips for the TV stations. He loaned me his Bolex when I was 12 and taught me how to make animated cartoons. I can blame him for egging me on to build the front projection system that gave screenplay its look.
1: It, he's he's crazy. Like I had no idea like he invented uh what he calls scanimation, which is just something that I assumed has been around since like the birth of moving pictures, but what it is is he would take a series of photos um that you know like of a horse running and then stack them all on top of each other and then when you would move like this lined black and black and clear plate over it it would appear that the horse is running and he invented that that's so crazy and and
0: any gift shop you go to is going to have these books by rufus butler cedar of these scanimation books of either a horse running or star wars scenes from star wars that are basically animated in the books like when you turn the pages uh i think there's a wizard of oz one there's um
1: it's
0: there's a peanuts one with charlie brown animated it's fantastic
1: it's so wild like i feel like all that stuff is so ingrained into like a cultural dna that you just assumed it was already around and not Mm -hmm. somebody invented that in the 80s who directed a trauma movie
0: yes yeah and yeah he he does i mean his after the trauma movies he started doing animated murals whereas you walk past the mural it it animates basically
1: yeah, they're called uh, life tiles, and if if you have the Trauma DVD, uh, they they sent a, a Troma intern out with a very shitty camera to film a bunch of his life tiles. Uh, it's, I mean, the quality aside, like it's pretty neat to see these things. Like it, it just boggles my mind. And he's, I, you know, at the time of the DVD, um, the only person working in that medium.
0: Yeah, and he does them all over the world. They, they, there's some on the Golden Gate Bridge. There's, uh, I think, it, in Taiwan at some art museum. Um, yeah, it just all all over the world, literally. He has these animated murals. These books in every gift shop. He makes toys. Um, he's kind. Of, he, he's basically an inventor in the style of George Melies, where he he's constantly tr- looking for new things to invent new ways to to use technology ancient technology
1: and i i feel like that's a pretty good segue right into the movie um from the first shot in it's in the special effects in screenplay look like there's something from a george Millet movie or you know from a german expressionistic like art film but Mm -hmm. it's also something i've never really seen before like what like lloyd says in his book this is you know one of troma's best movies and he's not like just saying that like it's very well made and there's an artistry behind it you could tell it's not somebody just trying to do boobs and blood which you know we all love that but like this is like a, a legit art film that Troma and, put although out.
0: it has boo, it has boobs and blood
1: yeah <laughs> it does meet yeah. that quota
0: <laughs> yeah like it, it, it i mean it does remind me of like early david lynch or early tim burton um but when they did those things mostly it was their short films i guess david lynch did racer head and at points it reminds me of racer head uh it also reminds me of uh the forbidden zone or forbidden zone the the Danny Elfman's brother, Richard, Richard Elfman. Elfman's uh,
1: film. Um, yeah, with all the Oingo Boingo music, that's a fun movie. Yes, <laughs> it was
0: such a great movie! I saw that here in in Los Angeles, and the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo did a a marching band before and after the film, and Richard Elfman showed up just wearing boxer shorts and a bathrobe, and playing cymbals and he was so drunk and so happy to be there uh it was a a wonderful wonderful night Um, i
1: i did a convention with him and like it was like a horror convention but it was you know the size of like an apartment bedroom was like the horror section so it's like me and richard and him and then nobody coming down the hallway because they didn't know we were in there so like he was just like like this sucks and he would like walk out (laughs) how because he wasn't like selling anything and we were like i was like we need to sell enough cannibal girl dvds so i can buy one of his forbidden sound posters
0: (laughs) oh i love that oh that's great (laughs) but yeah so so it's it's a very fun film about a writer who shows up in hollywood to write a script but gets embroiled in a, a terrible murder
1: and right off the bat um it's it's just not it's unrelentless like right at the beginning it's like i arrive in hollywood i sit down to write and then a killer slowly approaches behind me let's back up and it's like whoa there's like 40 special effects shots in like the first 10 seconds of this movie you're like oh my goodness this is this is gonna be quite the experience completely
0: and and it, it, it's funny it, it's interesting. He, I I talked to him a couple of years ago, many years ago, probably a decade ago, and we were talking about screenplay and he said he couldn't imagine anything more boring than filming two actors talking and that that was the most boring concept he he had. And so it's interesting because every time in that film that anyone talks, they ratchet up to make it so interesting. It's not just a conversation. It's like people screaming at each other
1: there's not there's not like a boring part in this movie there's no parts that drag you're like all right let's get to the next scene it's there's something interesting in every frame of this movie which you know have having seen hundreds of trauma movies you can't say that about all of them like this is Mm -hmm. something that's like it's definitely a step above a lot of what Troma has put out as far as just like a really interesting visuals and dialogue is, is just snappy and funny.
0: It's true. Oh, like the, 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 the angry bus terminal coffee shop waitress who's slamming his cup, the cup of coffee down. And it's like, what is the point of her anger? And it doesn't matter. It makes it so interesting.
1: Yeah, she's just um, pissed that that he can't decide what kind of pie he wants.
0: <laughs> I, I love that. Um, and something interesting, in the commentary he's talking about how the actress could only see out of one eye, so she wouldn't do any of the special effects shots because it involved like a pie getting in her face. And she was too scared about damaging her, her good eye. And so they had to use stunt doubles for for everything. For her.
1: <laughs> Which is funny because I didn't notice that when I first watched the movie. It was like after listening that commentary, I was really watching. It's like okay, I guess that. But she's you know covered in pie, and they do the old Hershey syrup gag with the blood, and it just looks gruesome as their faces. I I also did not know there was such a thing as a pie cutter like they had in. <laughs> in the I won
0: I want one of those pie cutters. I mean. I don't want my daughter near it. It looks <clears throat> very dangerous. But but those things are awesome.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, and then he uh, he goes off to go take a leak in uh, what what uh, what he calls one of the stinkiest toilets they've ever filmed in, and uh, he, he gets and well we should say so the director uh, plays the main character Edgar Allan who's a writer. And he looks like he walked off the set of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari.
0: Uh He really does.
1: Like, his look is spot on from from that movie. But he also has, like, kind of a twist of Buster Keaton mannerisms with him. Uh, But he goes into this bathroom, and he gets attacked by uh, a trans roller skater who goes to steal his typewriter.
0: (laughs) Hey, Cedar talked about, like, Oh, she was the worst casting I ever did. I, I, I couldn't have cast worse than her. But that was my favorite casting of the film. It was the perfect trauma. It reminded me of the tr- trauma casting of like a bearded man with a brown beard in a blonde wig and a huge, you know, full bra. You know, it, it was like so, such an absurd trans character. That was just it it was perfect. It it, it was like Michael Keane and uh in the Brian De Palma movie.
1: And it what makes that even, you know, just trauma being ahead of its game with all this kind of stuff, is they don't really call attention that it's a you know a trans person and they refer to her as she the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like
0: caveat, caveat. He he at the time of filming of this had never heard of trauma. He didn't know what trauma was. Uh so, so it wasn't trauma being ahead of its game. But yeah, the, the, they refer to her as a she. And <clears throat> but, but again, with the dialogue, I wrote this line down because it was so good. Um, the, Edgar Allen says, she's dead. And the, 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 the hotel manager who killed her says, who cares? This whole town's a garbage can full of maggots and flies. <laughs> you got to swat a couple every now and then just to keep them in line it's such a great pulpy line but delivered by george kushar you know that this this celebrated new york underground film director uh, in this in this weird german expressionist black and white film made in 84 like it's just how it's
1: a, how familiar were you with uh, george Kusher's work before watching this movie
0: I've never seen a single thing George Kuchar has made. I I know his name. I know his brother's name. I know that they were close close with Jonas Mekas and Jonas Mekas at the uh, what, in New York uh, uh, cinema, wh- wherever it was. Jonas Mekas's theater in New York <clears throat> uh, really celebrated them. They were peers of Warhol and um, who are the, some of the other guys from that from that scene? The um,
1: Factory days
0: yeah um i can't even remember now but
1: i i had before i've heard of him because of john waters and john waters saying he's a big inspiration and i watched a few of his uh things on youtube which you know it's the only way you can watch his movies i think part of what makes george kusher's movies hard to see is the music licensing stuff is he would just pull from other movie soundtracks and just put his movies out that way. So he's, you know, directed over 200 films, but nobody can see him because of licensing issues. Uh, I know he, he was
0: filming for a while. He moved out to San Francisco and he was teaching classes at the Art Institute there, or in one of the San Francisco schools. And he would basically at the end of every semester, he would make a film, he would direct a film starring the whole class and he would have the whole class get naked and you know, it it was very rambunctious underground films. (laughs) Um, But I guess that's part of how he made 200 films.
1: And he, uh, I actually have a clip I wanna play real quick about um, how they got George Kuchar to be in the movie.
2: During casting for the film, I phoned up George Kuchar in San Francisco and asked him if he'd like to play Martin, the villain. George, as you might know, is a star of the 60s underground filmmaking scene. I first saw him when he guest lectured at the Boston Film Video Foundation, where he showed his amazing, hilarious, and pathetic masterwork, Hold Me While I'm Naked. I wrote George later to tell him how much I loved his work, and later when I visited him in San Francisco, I showed my short movies to him and his students at the San Francisco Art Institute, and we became friends. So when I asked him to act in screenplay, I guess he accepted because he trusted me.
1: I thought it was funny how they introduced his character, like, it's very homoerotic, how he's introduced like it's like a close-up of his crotch zipping his his like tight jeans (laughs) up and then you know just being super muscly and looking like a wish.com version of uh tom of finland like walking out of there
0: (laughs) and there would be scenes i mean if you if you watch the old buster keaton movie uh uh the cameraman there's a great scene in that where buster keaton is is shoved into this dressing room or a changing room at the swimming pool uh, with another guy who looks very similar to George Kushar. And Buster Keeping very small, like Edgar Allen and this big guy. And they're undressing in the changing in the changing room at the swimming pool. And it's very similar to that, where there, there's lots of flesh rubbing up against each other. And I don't think the Buster Keaton movie was meant to be homoerotic, but it kind of ends up being, it ends up being kind of hot. And yeah, this definitely felt like it was going to turn into a gay porn in the bathroom you know the scene. yeah bathroom.
1: It, it's like that's i don't know if that was the director's intention but that's what i got from watching the movie when you see this like you know ripped dude with like a mustache that doesn't take no wife for an beater, answer
0: white beater yeah
1: <laughs> and just zipping up like in the middle of the bathroom <laughs> Be like what's going on here
0: <laughs> it, it's a very fun scene and th- that toilet reminded me so much of Poultry Geist. How many movies have really dirty toilets that are shot into? And they said that one had strawberry jam in it, but it, it reminded me of the-, the toilet full of flies and poop in Poultry Geist.
1: <laughs> the ones we were using are the the fake. One.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the-, the one that the general does a poop into.
1: Man or that
0: George Fly, uh Joe does
1: That was that that was a rough day on Poultry guys that poo-poo day. Man, <laughs> that was not a fun day on set.
0: That was a miserable day on set. But we're talking about screen yes. play here.
1: So um, and then uh George has a f- he kills the the mugger and and breaks her neck, and it's if if you're a low budget filmmaker you should watch this movie for a number of reasons but just like kind of the tricks they do are so effective like how they broke this roller skater's neck just by you know creative editing
0: i i i didn't even really pay attention to that so i'm interested tell us more
1: yeah so um the skater comes up and he just grabs her head and they he kind of twisted a you know, twist the neck a little bit, and then they just cut to another angle after showing her feet swivel and then her head like completing the revolution. And it, and you know, with the sound effect, it's pretty effective. And it, I thought it looked pretty cool. Very
0: cool. I, I'm going to go back and watch that shot again. It's In, uh, this film. I mean, so when the characters have not reached the apartment building yet, but the fact that. The entire film pretty much was shot in one studio apartment. Yes. It's just, it's, it's remarkable.
1: I actually have a clip I want to play about from the commentary about how they designed the apartment complex for screenplay. Cause it's incredible.
2: Flip Johnson figured out how to get the swimming pool to look realistic. We cut a hole in the pool area of the mat painting and positioned a piece of plexiglass on a bed of foam rubber between it and the set. While we were shooting we rocked the plexiglass up and down. My loft studio was only 11 feet high. This posed a problem when we needed a wide shot of the apartment complex with people on more than one level. We solved it by first filming the action taking place on one level, then front projecting it into that area of the mat painting while we simultaneously shot the other level of action live through the other area i wasn't nuts about the screenplay script ed greenberg and i had written but it was the only script i had in hand so as soon as i got back to boston i hammered together three walls two with windows one with a door built a set of stairs leading nowhere perhaps a precursor of what was to come and then i photographed these set pieces from different angles and used the photos to create a four foot square matte painting of the courtyard of the welcome apartments then i went out and dragged in all my old friends and filmmaking buddies and said look this is all we need to make this movie are you in and I dragged everyone back into working with me again. I was driven. I was so pissed off and frustrated with Hollywood that I was determined to make this movie, to build the sets for it, to make the matte paintings, even to act in it, to show them all. I even convinced myself that the movie could be made in black and white in the style of my silent films. Oh boy!
1: It's it's insane that that was shot in like his apartment, and it looks it looks it it's going to sound like a slight to him, but it looks as good as it does. Cause there's no reason that should look good at all. And it looks absolutely incredible. Like it looks like you could tell it's a matte painting. Cause that's the style they're going for, mm-hmm. but it looks like they had like a big movie set to do this swimming pool, you know, and, you know, villa inside of this apartment complex.
0: And listening to the commentary and when he talks about using plexiglass, shaky plexiglass, to, to give the impression of a swimming pool it's just it's so interesting
1: it's so cool and i i like all the characters in this movie i i will say there's two characters i had an issue with which was uh the agent wiener and then um he's like a movie a film agent and then there's somebody else in the apartment um what was his name uh kleindorf um I had an issue with both of them because he cast two older balding men. And so the I thought it was the same person for like a good chunk of the movie.
0: Well, you thought the two older Jewish men were the same guy?
1: Two older Jewish balding men.
0: <laughs> no, I completely agree. I could not tell you which was which and they they looked the same they acted the same they had the same functionality almost
1: yeah because one the so the agent they were both winner, trying to
0: sell his script
1: yeah so i had no idea and then it wasn't until like he called the guy another name i was like oh that's a different that's a different character <laughs> yeah i would say like that's probably like like if i were to give notes that would be my note it's like i didn't know that was a different guy <laughs> but all the characters in in here you have like the the aging b-movie star uh, who,
0: who was based on his old acting teacher who he hated
1: man i wish i knew who his acting teacher was she has one oh. of the best monologues in the
0: <laughs> it, her her name was uh, nina fauchet she she was a star of she she was, I think she won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for American in Paris. And yeah, he he studied under her and hated her.
1: I fucked Boris Karloff. <laughs> I fucked them all. <laughs> it
0: was so great. And, and just, yeah, was she really like that? Yeah. <laughs> And I I loved the young actress Katie Bulger. Yes, served, she reminded me of Jessica Harper uh, when when she was young in Sisteria I or...
1: I thought of that too. I I was thinking uh, when I was watching it. It reminded me of Jessica Harper though from uh, Shock Treatment.
0: Of course. And it really was the shock treatment, Jessica Harper, to serve more upbeat, lively. Yeah.
1: yeah. And then there's like one delivery of a line. I forget what it was that she gives. I was like, it feels like he told her to act like like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. And then I listened to the commentary and they're like, yeah, we had her act like Judy Garland. I was like, that's funny. I that's amazing. <laughs> and she's she's a younger actress who's just getting into it and she has a boyfriend Nikki blair who uh
0: (laughs) who's sitting on a motorbike he's about to ride off and they're like he's the hottest thing since james dean and he's just like wonderful foreshadowing (laughs)
1: like a in a scene that you know back to you know richard o'brien stuff but it, like he enters the movie like eddie and rocky Horror and just mm. br- drives around on the apartment complex in his motorcycle for no reason like everyone's like whoa what is this rebel doing here
0: but that's that, that's right it, it, i didn't think about the fact that it is a lot like eddie i wonder if that was conscious or not i mean because rocky horror at the time would have been you know, 84, when they were filming it, it would have been playing Midnight in Boston and L.A.
1: Yeah, and and the fact that he spent some time in San Francisco to to hook up with George Kuchar, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it was on his radar somehow. You see that Edgar, he uh, has, you know, he has to fix stuff. He's the handyman for the complex. And he has to go um, fix Nina's bathtub and when she's like putting the moves on him and every time somebody pisses him off in the movie he uh goes back to his apartment starts writing how he wishes they would die in his script <laughs> and and for her he uh he uh, imagines crushing up a light bulb and feeding it to her dog in some ground beef and <laughs> and then that's uh so
0: horrific
1: that's probably the most brutal one in the movie yeah. Is, is that and then and then drowning her and uh that, that that's the sex scene
0: or pseudo sex scene where nina and and she pulls edgar allen into the, the 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 sudsy bathtub and she's just screaming orgasmically even though they're both clothed and it, it, it was such a like parody of itself but wonderful
1: yeah so fun <laughs> if it, it felt like something you would see from like a 1950s like like sexy movie yeah. where it's like we're not allowed to show this but this is what we can show it's we got lots of bubbles <laughs> of lingerie <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's pretty fun and then um and we find out wiener uh, has a brother who runs a uh, movie studio, Allied Pictures, and he's like, "I want a murder movie, but for cheap." So, so uh, we finally have a reason for the the agent to remember Edgar, typing at the beginning, and then there's the crazed rock star uh, lot.
0: Yeah, it was kind of like uh, Alan Moore meets charles manson meets jimmy hendrix Maybe, yeah
1: i'm not sure <laughs> meets the doomsayer from friday the 13th <laughs>
0: sure yeah just, no. just proclaiming doom and and running through the through the motel as this cult leader
1: it's so yeah that's a pretty bizarre uh, the i you know you got like the alistair crowley zappa guy up in the upstairs doing these wicked guitar solos and so come smoke some ganja with me and we'll uh what does he say he's like uh he's like come smoke some ganja with me and uh and we'll uh see the hands of a sinner <laughs> <laughs> and then so he gets like this visual of uh edgar smokes this weed and he gets uh this visual of strangling holly um and so that freaks the doomsayer out and he burns his hand on an oil lamp which it's like that's uh doesn't seem like somebody you'd ever want to go uh smoke weed smoke,
0: smoke ganja with
1: yeah it's like like it's just weed man you <laughs> freaked out and burned <laughs> my hand on an oil lamp <laughs> so and edgar writes about burning him to death and burning his apartment down um, and then. um and then uh we have this fun fun shot of Nikki and Holly making out like over it's like the classic overlooking hollywood, hollywood shot
0: sign? yeah
1: but it's like all rear projection and it's it feels like an old sci-fi movie and he's like uh you need to uh he's like i want to give you a part in my movie and she's she's on the fence about it but uh she she uh you know remembers that edgar is gonna you know gives her some acting lessons for and apparently he's a really good director because he talks to her twice about acting in the whole movie (laughs) like you just need to lose your inhibitions and uh if you feel like like hurting somebody hurt him if you feel like fucking somebody fuck him and that that's how you become a true actor
0: (laughs) I I love that the the character the, the motorbike the Hollywood star whatever his name is, he he in that scene he reminds me so much of Michael Sarah in the Twin Peaks um return the final <laughs> season of Twin Peaks, and Michael Sarah riding up in the the sort of uh, Marlon Brando on the motorbike, um yeah, it was, it, it, again sort of no i guess not really homoerotic but but hot yeah it's just hot yeah
1: um and and uh holly goes back to get some advice from edgar and she's like well let's uh let's make some whoopee and the the nude scene of the film and they fall into the swimming pool
0: (laughs) you got boobs and blood you know it's a trauma movie
1: yeah they got they got that <laughs> and so then the guy who i thought was uh, the agent um ends up talking to edgar and is like you need to make this you know about yourself try to become this character that you're writing in the movie and start hurting people and we'll sell the movie better this way and uh he's not feeling it so you know they foreshadow he throws a script in the garbage disposal and there's a big to-do and Nikki's taken off and he splatters his bike on a truck on a- which
0: that scene is one the scene where the star where, where Nikki splatters his, his bike on a truck is just one of the greatest scenes in this film and it's beautiful the special effects there were so many special effects that they did for that one you know three second scene basically
1: if if you make movies i i'm playing some clips from the commentary on here but if you make movies you should really listen to the commentary cuz every he breaks down how he does these special effects so you could do them yourself which i thought was really cool um he doesn't you know it's kind of a a slim commentary if you will a lot of dead spots if you listen to it but the stuff he does say there is gold every single time and if you're making your own movie you should really listen to this commentary Agreed. Uh, but yeah that nikki splattering against the truck was it's just so funny too because it's (laughs) ah! (laughs) a good uh bloody effect you know in all the hubbub um edgar's script goes missing and he uh he gets into a fight with martin because martin the landlord is you know saying you're not focusing enough on your real job of fixing stuff around my shitty apartments and uh holly tries to convince him to stay so he does and then at this time martin's like all right edgar go fix 3b's light bulb which is the nina the b movie star and her light bulb outside is broken and soap suds start coming out from under that door so they all go investigate and find out that she's dead so um and then kind of from here on out is the movie like really kind of picks up um after that after this like first real death um the the cops which we haven't really talked a lot about the cops but it's you know a tall one and a short one and they both did the score for the movie um Mm -hmm. and they're just what you want from like movie detectives
0: <laughs> the tall one is like guido the killer pimp and the the short from uh risky business and the short one is like Columbo after way too many nights out
1: yeah Columbo and joe friday had a baby <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like just a fax man and they're yeah they're pretty funny like that's whenever i like do cops in a movie i try to get what they did so successfully in this movie um so in the the cops investigate and they find out that edgar writes uh murder movies which i like that's what they call horror movies and this is murder murder horror movies, movies. <laughs> so i kind of want to start calling him that <laughs> because of this um and when they're when they're there and kleindorf he uh he's trying to convince the cops to you know to it be tv stars he's like i know this edgar guy is really the killer um but i'll sell i'll pitch you guys as a, i didn't quite understand what his job is where he can pitch cops to, to be tv stars but uh he's like yeah you'll be tv stars just uh wait and see and um the the doomsayer catches on fire and jumps over the balcony and into uh, the swimming pool and, and uh, he dies and Kleindorf calls the cops and the press, the press out there and the cops are investigating the typewriter. They're like, Oh, we know this is uh this is real, but they can't find a script anywhere to kind of tie anything to him. Cause it's gone missing. And, uh, and uh, I should say, in the commentary, they they talk a lot about George kusher's ankle getting broken in three in the, places. Yeah, and but they but like the whole I mean, time his ankle
0: was broken in three places. So well, they talk about it three times. But.
1: They they talk about it quite a bit too, but they don't tell you quite how until a little later on in the movie. But they, if you see him for a good chunk of the movie, they're like, "Oh, we shot him waist up because." His his ankle was fucked for pretty much the whole shoot, and we thought he was it, gonna it was quit.
0: Twenty five percent of the budget went to his his ankle
1: because he didn't have insurance.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was. A, I think it was supposed to be a thirty six thousand dollars shoot, and ended up being forty seven thousand because they paid for his hospital bills.
1: Yeah, and they just uh, they had to raise more money from like their friends and family to <laughs> get so that. Sad um yeah. but yeah there's a there's a scene where um edgar goes because he's like i'm pretty sure uh kleindorf has the script so he goes in there and uh and he flips on the garbage disposal to look down there for the script and kleindorf's hand just pops out
0: <laughs> such a great shot He's so disgusting
1: <laughs> and and so martin knows something's up and he uh he goes in there, he's like, Oh, I'm just fixing the garbage disposal, but he knows that's bullshit. Edgar runs out and uh they have the cops go in and they turn on the garbage disposal, and they're like, Yeah, it seems like it's working, but a whole body falls out from under the sink.
0: <laughs> With so much blood is pooling out, yeah, really just the way they have overacting, over bloodying as well.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, and so the the cops they they want to search edgar's apartment um and to look for the scripts and he can't find it edgar is looking for his script around the place so he's he goes into uh, martin's uh bedroom to look for it and that's where they they have one of their first brawls in there or he hides from him escapes but they have a brawl in edgar's uh closet where george kusher picks up a water heater and (laughs) tries to throw it on him which i've it kind of reminded me a little bit of like frankenstein's monster type of type of thing he's you know just lumbering around smashing stuff Um, but there is a twist in this movie like it's a who done it and you're you're guessing a little bit and you're pretty sure you know but i wasn't really expecting
0: I have to admit, I actually, I was hoping you were going to tell who it is because I didn't, I, I, I didn't understand.
1: So, well, you
0: don't have to tell me. I you can, I, I,
1: I, go in spoilers on this. So if you, if you don't want to hear, then plug yours for a little bit. Unless you're driving, and then just ignore a little bit. But um, the killer was Holly. The whole time. Oh, it was
0: Holly? I thought it maybe Holly temporarily became the killer she, she she was acting like she wanted to become an actress but then really was the hotel manager
1: she uh so she stole the script um and she thought she was wow. acting the whole time in in uh edgar's movie oh
0: how did i miss that i don't know
1: it, okay. it was kind of sloppily put together the the explanation of that i'm not gonna lie <laughs> um but you know he ends up the cops come in and and uh they they see um martin with a bloody hammer trying to kill edgar because he you know he still hates him and the cops shoot shoot him to death they're like well we have our killer it was it was this guy the whole time they thought it you know was martin but it really holly and so edgar grabs the script and Walks outside and sees uh, Mr. Weiner out there trying to solicit him, and one of my favorite lines in the movie, um, he Edgar gets in the car and he and Weiner's like, "Well, who would want to kill a talented kid like you?" He just looks at him. He says, "Hollywood." Hollywood. <laughs> and then they pull off, and the license plate says, "The End." Yeah,
0: <laughs> and actually, you know, I missed the the pun of Hollywood until just this moment so thank you <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's yeah it's such a fun movie if if you like you know art film you should watch it or if you're making your own movie you should watch this one it's just
0: but it's it's interesting so new line was going to was trying to pick it up and new line really wanted to distribute it but they were having some back and forth with him and then he got sick of waiting and so jumped the gun and got it booked in Boston and the reviews were so awful that New Line re- decided not to distribute the film. No one else would distribute it for him and he decided never to make another movie. Uh And the yeah. only company, the one company that would distribute it, would pick it up was Trauma.
1: I got a little clip I'm going to play about that.
2: It took the better part of a year to edit the movie, which I did in my loft on an upright movieola. We premiered it at the Independent Feature Project in New York the same year the Cohen brothers premiered their first feature, Blood Simple. New Line Cinema offered us a distribution deal, but they wanted to distribute the film in 16mm, and we wanted it blown up and distributed in 35mm, so we held out. We then went and put it in the Boston Film Festival in the hope of garnishing rave newspaper reviews and thus enhancing our position with New Line. We thought it was a risk well worth taking. I'd always been a fan of uh, Boston Globe reviewer Michael Blowen. He seemed to have an appreciation for clever, low-budget spatter movies. So I looked forward to what he could write about screenplay. We'd been told that reviewers put favorable reviews in the Friday paper and unfavorable reviews in Saturday. When Blowen's review didn't appear in the Friday paper, we were a little worried. But when Saturday's paper hit the stands, our worst fears were confirmed. Blowen's review of screenplay was short and dismissive, and perhaps a tad cruel. One of his sentences is now permanently branded into my brain. While it is customary for reviewers to bend over backwards to support independent filmmakers, he wrote, in this case, that contortion is impossible. Years later, when Blowen gave up movie reviewing, He wrote one last article in the Globe telling how he had once been a young filmmaker who had had the privilege of showing his movie to director Otto Preminger. Preminger told him he had no talent and advised him to give up filmmaking. Maybe Blown was taking it out on me. On the other hand, another newspaper reviewer who had sat next to him during the screening told me that Blown, who had partied heavily the night before, had actually fallen asleep during the movie. Anyway, after that review, New Line dropped us like a hot potato. Nonetheless, Screenplay was invited to some international film festivals where it drew repeat midnight crowds, and it ended up being distributed by those wacky guys, Lloyd Kaufman and Michael Hertz at Troma, who, to their credit, did blow the film up to 35 millimeter. After Screenplay, I had plenty of time to review my 20 years of filmmaking and think about whether I wanted to pursue my career as a movie maker. I finally opted against it.
1: I I think it's such a crime that he has not made another movie. Yeah. Like it's really?
0: well, he spent, um, I don't know. I don't think he talks about this in the script. He spent, I've got it written down here. He spent like six years working on a screenplay about Tesla and Edison, uh, to be called Light and Power. It was a script called Light and Power. He wrote 14 drafts and his producer wanted it to be a regular Hollywood film, but he wanted it to be another black and white, uh, you know, uh, uh, expressionist film. And so he and his producer broke, split up over it. And he was, he was just like, fuck it. You know, I'm not, I've done 14 drafts on this and now it's falling apart and that's it. But I'd love to see what, what the screen, that screenplay was.
1: And he has done other shorts but they don't seem to be easy to find um you sent me a a link of just a couple highlights and there's no audio but it's on youtube you can see clips of some of his other stuff and it it seems pretty fun to watch i i'd hope like a vinegar syndrome or something picks up screenplay and decides to do a really nice blu-ray and maybe put his shorts on there that would be lovely and it it just deserves more recognition than it probably gets Mm -hmm. although it seems also like one of those like if you know you know like this is this is a gem that you know trauma is sitting on that not a lot of people are talking about much like maniac nurses find ecstasy exactly Seiated semen lesbians. (laughs) (laughs) The first
0: feature film made it entirely on location in,
1: in uh, like in Bulgaria or something. Somewhere, yeah. (laughs) Um, what I I always like to look and see if, if there's any other like trauma connections, like with the cast and crew, and I could I could only find one. But apparently, Jeff Sass was a production assistant on this movie.
0: And I talked to Rufus about that years ago, a decade ago. And Rufus said, no, he's never heard of Jeff Sass. And I said, are you sure he's in the credits as a PA? He said, no, he wasn't. And so Rufus's theory was Jeff was added to the credits by Troma.
1: So I had that thought, too, uh, because of the time when Troma would have picked this up was when Jeff was working working there and i am gonna have jeff sass on a future episode so i'm gonna ask him about it
0: great yeah Um, definitely ask him because rufus when i talked to him i explicitly asked him about this and he completely he said i have no idea who you're talking about
1: but it's like it doesn't look like a trauma added credit because his name is in the middle of like a title in the same
0: style yeah in the same style as the
1: And when Troma adds a credit on, on like movies that aren't theirs, they're not subtle about it. (laughs) (laughs) Like you can tell. (laughs) Yeah. Well, before we move on to the double feature section, do you have any final thoughts on screenplay?
0: Two thumbs up from me. It's a a, a great film, a great trauma film. It's very different from the rest of the catalog and yet has a lot of overlap with with the rest of the trauma, uh, you know, aroma, the aroma of trauma. Uh, so yeah, you recommend it thoroughly.
1: Yeah. It, it definitely stands out from a lot of stuff they put out, but it definitely doesn't feel out of place either. Yeah, exactly. But all right. Well, it's screenplay night at, at uh, the magic castle for you, Andy, what is the other movie you're going to play? With I screenplay.
0: had a lot of trouble with this. I, I did thinking, too. First, I was thinking Cafe Flesh. Have you seen Cafe Flesh?
1: I have not.
0: So that's it's it's a, a German expressionist styled uh, porno film. It was an art porn film, in from like 1980 or the late 70s. I was thinking that because they both have the German expressionist thing. But then I was thinking, no, it should be Forbidden Zone. You know, R- Richard Elfman's Forbidden Zone, uh, which also has the German expressionist thing. Yeah, I was stuck on that. Now I was thinking shock treatment um, because the, the, the Holly and Jessica Harper. Uh, but finally, I settled on Myra Breckinridge.
2: And now, ladies and gentlemen, what you've all been waiting for, the man killer. The moment of truth has finally arrived.
0: The book that couldn't be written is now the motion picture that couldn't be made. Myra Breckinridge.
1: You're right with you boys get your resumes out memo to flagler and flag attorneys dear charlie hmm honey that feels real good hey uh what's your name honey
2: i'm Myra breckenridge <laughs> you have a lot to learn all you men have a lot to learn and i've taken it upon myself to teach you i'm the widow of your late nephew myron and i've come to collect a half a million dollars myron's mother said with her dime breath let's go to your uncle buck and you tell that son of a bitch that i've got a copy of the will and i want my share to go to you
0: you realize once you cut it off it won't go back Great bunch of boys here.
1: Of course, you get the occasional weirdo, uh, like anywhere. But uh, greatest bunch of kids in Hollywood.
2: You have all the kinky angles that are in right now. I mean, have you any that I don't know about? (laughs) Oh, Leticia, what about studs? They don't call you the queen of the casting couch for nothing. should a man
0: act. He should All chicks, that's how.
2: Let's just have a nice, girly evening and I'll tell you how I lost my virginity. You tell me how you lost yours. If only you were a man. You can't tell the wolf from Little Red Riding Hood these days. Of course, uh, Breckenridge is more than a match for most men. Don't miss the most sensational scene in the history of the screen.
0: Not there. My boy or a girl? I can't tell from here. You
2: know. Myra Breckenridge is a dish and don't you ever forget it. Here I
0: go! Everything you've heard about Myra Breckenridge
2: is true. Uh
0: have you seen Myra Breckenridge?
1: I haven't. I watched the trailer um And it looks like one I need to track down. I don't know how easy that is to see.
0: I found it on YouTube. That's the only way I could find it. Uh, It's not on any you know legal streaming system. Um, But it's the story of Rex Reed, the film critic. You know, much like um, uh, uh, who wrote *Beyond the Valley of the Dolls*?
1: Uh, Uh, Ebert. Ebert.
0: Much like Ebert, Rex Reed wanted to be in film, so he uh, starred in this film version of Gore Vidal's great novel, Myra Breckenridge as a man who gets a sex change and turns into Raquel Welsh as, as I think it was Raquel Welsh. Yeah. And uh, who returns to Hollywood. It's like this, this sort of hateful celebration of a lost Hollywood and both films have these terrible scripts, awful overacting, incredible tributes to, to old Hollywood. Like in Myra Breckinridge, you have Mae West playing a washed up old actress, much like Nina. Um, but, but in Myra Breckinridge, Mae West comes out, and she says this young cowboy uh, B-movie actor who's trying to audition with her. He's played by Tom Selleck and I think, his first movie role. And she says, How tall are you, cowboy, once you're off your horse? And Tom Selleck says, well, six feet, four inches, ma'am." Well, let's, and Mae West looks at him and says, let's not talk about the six feet. Let's just talk about those four inches. (laughs) And this is Mae West and Tom Selleck in like a forgotten, weird, bizarre (laughs) Hollywood film. Um, So they're both filled with, with, you know, found clips or stolen movie clips from old movies. You know, there were in, in screenplay, they have all those clips from Caligari or Der Golem or uh, whatever other films there were. Nosferatu. There. Yeah. Nosferatu. Um, they both have references to old films. They're both, uh, uh, they both have dancing down the Hollywood walk of stars or walking in one and dancing in the other. Um but while, while screenplay is slow and black and white, uh, or not not slow, but, but, but sort of uh, it's sometimes slow, it, it, you know, one location, the motel, the, the, the Myra Breckenwich is big and fast and colorful and in 20 locations has Raquel Welsh pegging John Huston up the ass <laughs> while screaming, much like Nina screams orgasmically in the, the bathtub. Um, and I think it was the bathtub orgasm that did it for me because that <laughs> sounded just like uh, Raquel Welsh when she's screaming as she's uh, raping John Huston from behind. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a movie and a half. Go see it today.
1: I too had trouble picking out a double for this one. I just lots of ideas. So one of my my immediate thought was the movie Evil Ed Uh, which is about a Hollywood editor who watches too many horror movies. So he becomes a killer. I was like, well, it's fun, but I don't know. It might be a little too on the nose. Another one I was thinking was um, The Wizard of Speed and Time. Not so much um, because of screenplay, but because of the director, Rufus uh, Cedar, where where The Wizard of Speed and Time is about... You know this filmmaker who does these incredible stop motion and and old school hollywood special effects and it's a straight to video 80s you know just love hooray for hollywood um and crazy effects and 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 the and the director of that um he only made that one movie but he did a lot of those interstitials for mtv in the 80s all the stop motion and a lot of commercials from the '80s with weird stop motion, and the movie's just like this. That's cool, but um, it' not enough of a link uh, for me. So I decided to go with the 2002 Spike Jones film adaptation.
0: She hates me.
2: She's disappointed. I could see it in her eyes when we met. I've got to stop sweating. oh She looked at my hairline. She thinks I'm bald. She's thinking I
0: would never in a million years sleep with this guy.
2: We think you're great.
0: Oh, thanks. Wow, that's that's nice to hear. To begin, coffee would help me think. Coffee and a muffin. I'm going up to Santa Barbara this Saturday and I, I was wondering. Oh. I'm sorry. So I'll just sorry.
2: be right back with your pie then.
0: Drum roll, please. I'm gonna be a screenwriter, like you. I'm putting in a chase sequence, so the killer flees on horseback. Cops after them on a motorcycle, and it's like a battle between motors and horses, like technology versus horse.
2: Susan, we would really like to option this. You wanna make it into a movie? I wanna know what it feels like to care about something passionately. John Laroche is a tall guy, sharply handsome. The book has no story. There's no story. Make one up. Okay, we open with LaRoche. No, we open at the beginning of time. Okay, we
0: open with LaRoche. Crazy white man. We open on Charlie Kaufman. Fat, bald,
2: ugly, paces.
0: I've written myself into my screenplay. That's kind of weird, huh? I guess we thought that maybe Susan and LaRoche could fall in love. I just don't want to ruin it by making it a Hollywood thing. It's like I don't want to cram in sex or guns or car chases or characters overcoming obstacles to succeed in the end. She's crying. What's she hiding from? I think you actually need to speak to this woman to know her. People find love, people lose it. Every day someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy someone else. This is, our last dance. This, is our last dance. this is Who's gonna play me? I, want I think I should play me.
1: Under in screenplay it bounces kind of back and forth from um from edgar's writing to what happens in real life it like turns it up by 11 in adaptation where you don't know what you're seeing is what he's writing or if it's actually happening or if it's fantasy so much mm-hmm. where the lines in real life it got blurred where they um so nicholas cage uh plays charlie kaufman and his identical twin brother donald kaufman and in the first time in the academy award history a fictional person was nominated for a screenplay award because they thought it was real for the (laughs) for the thing and i i think like after the after the nominations came out they were like oh we nominated a character from a movie (laughs) um but it's you know nicholas cage not not really caging it up up as crazy as he goes but he plays a nervous and reserved screenwriter who is having trouble adapting this book called the orchid thief about you know somebody who steals orchids and sells them to rich ladies and it's just it's just crazy to see the storytelling in that movie
0: did you did you ever read the orchid thief
1: i didn't i just because i like adaptations so much i don't know if i want to ruin that but i the author susan orlean she she wrote uh this article which i read which became the movie blue crush and i also love that movie so well
0: the the orchid theme is a great book it's so absolutely nothing like adaptation when i when i saw adaptation i was kind of like this isn't the orchid thief Wait, i loved it but but so and the orchid thief is hilarious and weird and filled with bizarre characters but nothing like adaptation
1: um yeah it's it's such a weird a weird movie and a fun adventure like like you don't know what to really expect from that movie because your narrator is nicholas cage who's writing what you're seeing at the same time um Mm -hmm. and i i always like to look and see you know trauma connections and i found a couple from adaptation um so the person joel harlow who did the makeup there did the makeup in uh, Toxie two and three um judy greer is in there she's in lolly love the jenna fisher film uh doug jones is in that movie he's in hellboy but his first movie was the newly deads and Probably one of the funniest ones is Tilda Swindon is in Kabuki Man's Cocktail Corner. What? Yeah. (laughs)
0: What is Kabuki Man's Cocktail Corner?
1: It is like, it was like a YouTube series for a while. It's on Troma now, um, where Sergeant Kabuki Man drinks and has a talk show.
0: And that Tilda Swinton in it?
1: Yeah, they, they ambushed her at Cannes and she <laughs> oh. loved Kabuki Man. And there's some fun pictures of Tilda Swinton and Sergeant Kabuki Man <laughs> floating around. Oh, that's
0: hilarious. I love that.
1: <laughs> so I like that Tilda Swinton has a trauma credit in her massive <laughs> filmography, <laughs> for especially because it's Kabuki Man's cocktail corner. Yeah. Uh,
0: I wish it was Tales from the Crapper, though.
1: Yes. <laughs> maybe tell some of the crap or two they could get her <laughs> get her on know. board but uh well cool I think uh, we should start uh, wrapping this up. Where can people follow you or see uh, some of your uh, magic shows? people people
0: can find my magic on YouTube. Uh, just search for my name Andy Deemer. Uh, there's some great stuff my magic castle shows are on there and also some other stuff my pen and teller appearance. Uh, people can follow me on Instagram at Andy Deemer Magic, and yeah, those are those are the two
1: big places. Awesome, and you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram at Lego Larry. You can follow the show on Twitter at Talk and Trauma, and as always, stay traumatized.